This message by Craig Cabanis titled Celebrating God's Presence is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the third main session at our Worship God 2006 conference. Craig serves as Senior Pastor of Grace Church in Frisco, Texas. Well, let's pray and then we will uh, get to work and look at God's Word tonight. Lord, we thank you for what we've already experienced this evening, how good you've been to us. Thank you for truth sung. Thank you for your presence in our midst in a very discernible way. Thank you for your kindness to us that we would even know you, much less be able to come here and to learn and to celebrate and to worship to hear from you, God, how grateful we are, how grateful. And we consider tonight where we should be based upon our many sins and our rebellion to you. And when we consider where we are in light of that reality, we're simply overwhelmed by grace. So thank you for grace, Lord. I, I pray tonight that you would enable me to communicate your word with clarity pray that you would enable me to speak truthfully and accurately. I pray that you would enable me to honor you and to serve your people. And I pray, O oh God, that you would speak to us. Spirit of God, we ask you to open our ears, to soften our hearts, to illumine our eyes, and to speak ever so clearly, for you are present. Now enable us to hear and to respond to your presence for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, recently came across the following story in the uh, Dallas newspaper. It's a story that I just, I have read over and over and have been intrigued by this story uh, to to, to a great degree as I've considered uh, this occurrence Here's how the story goes. Almost immediately after Judy, I'm changing her name, uh, it's really something else, but almost immediately after Judy moved into her house in Old East Dallas last month, strange things began to happen. The chandelier would rattle. Once, when she was playing dominoes, she saw water began to slosh Jurassic Park-like in a glass. She heard footsteps at night. A family member suggested it was ghosts, but she was skeptical. I said, no, the footsteps are too heavy for ghosts, said Judy, 25, manager of a dry cleaning business. She thought it was more likely to be an animal. But when she and her boyfriend took a flashlight and finally investigated the attic earlier this week, they discovered that they could definitely rule out mice. She said the attic had been cordoned off with cloth. Beer, water bottles, a blanket, and old shirts were littered about. In short... Someone had been living there, apparently sneaking out when Judy went to work and sneaking back before she returned. She believes the intruder would jimmy the front door, walk through her living room and up the stairs. She would return home some nights and find that food had disappeared from her refrigerator. On other occasions, some of her boyfriend's shirts would be missing from the closet. Although she said she was never frightened, she began to walk around her house armed with a golf club. (laughs) As time went on, the noises increased. And by Thursday, she decided the time had come to force the issue. She said she stood at the bottom of the stairway and yelled upstairs. I told him, I want you out of my attic. I'm going outside, and when I come back, you better be gone or I'm calling the police, she said. Judy left the house, and a few minutes later saw a man sneak out to her backyard. She described him as a white man in his late 40s, about 5 foot 4 inches tall and 120 pounds, wearing shorts and a tank top. 
He was fast walking. He was drenched in sweat because it's hotter than sin up there, she said. He saw me and hid behind a tree and I yelled, you better get out of here. Now, if that story is not strange enough, I've read the story online on the newspaper's website and they actually had a link to the site that said, uh, that said literally along right after the story said, have you had a similar experience? If so, share your story. Have you had a similar experience that you buy a house, that you move in, and a dude is living in your attic? And so I'm curious. I go to the link, and there's, there's, there's no one had a similar experience. But one guy wrote, I had to share this. I had a man living in my attic a couple of months ago. No, wait, not a man, a raccoon. So I, people are writing in. And as I read this story, I I am just dumbfounded by the experience. Now, I do not want to mock this lady because she is a victim. And actually, uh, I respect her at one level. She is fearless. This woman is walking around her house with a golf club to defend herself, which gives new meaning to don't mess with Texas. Because in Texas, we got women that will take you out with a five iron. So if you want to walk around and challenge them, she is walking around with a five iron ready to do damage to anybody in her house. But that being that aside, as I considered the story, I, I, I just was considering what is it like the month before you realize there's a guy in the attic and you just sort of think he's there. I mean, once you, the chandelier is rattling, and once the Jurassic Park, like, I love that image, the glass is moving and the water's moving, once that happens, I think we can rule out dinosaurs. At that point, I think we can rule out dinosaurs and go to the attic and perhaps check what's going on up there. Her friends are saying, there's ghosts in your house. And yet, no one goes up and checks, even though the leftover lasagna is eaten when you get home. There are dirty dishes in the sink. People can't find their shirts because they're gone. And and no one's quite sure what to do. When there are footsteps over the head, I'm thinking that's a good time to go upstairs and see if anyone's there. How about inspecting the house before it's bought? Did anyone ever look up there? Just checking out some insulation, looking at the furnace, something. I don't know. Even before you buy a house, don't you look up there? I'm, I'm amazed by this story because as I read this story, I thought, how is it possible? How is it possible for a month? How is it possible that you can have someone present and living in your house and be unaware of it? How is it conceivable that someone can be living in your house and you're only vaguely aware of their presence? And I thought it happens all the time. It's happened to me many times. How many times have I gathered with the church to worship God and been unaware or vaguely aware that God is present in his house. How many times have I sung songs of praise with mind distracted in a thousand different places, completely unaware that God is present in his house. How many sermons have I listened to and been aware of the human voice of the preacher declaring the word, but only had a foggy notion of God's voice speaking to me and his presence in his house? How many times have I received communion and and been aware of the bread and aware of the cup yet not really been aware of the presence of the Savior who is present and who is living in his people who are his house. See, it's concerning, it's concerning to be sure to have someone physically living in your house and you're unaware. Oh, but it's far more concerning that Sunday after Sunday, At different points in my life, I could be in the presence 
of the living God and unaware or just vaguely aware that he is there. God calls us to be more than vaguely aware, I believe. God calls us to be clearly and distinctively, distinctly perceptive to his presence. You see, God is present in his people. And when we gather on Sunday for his corporate worship, he is present in our midst. But if you're like me, that's very easy to forget. It's just easy to not be aware of that fact. Paul reminds the Corinthians of God's presence with them. The Corinthians lived as if God wasn't present among his people. They had forgotten that they were his temple. And Jeff referred to the passage last night where in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Paul asks them this very question. Do you not know? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The tone of the question is, don't you remember? The the intent of the question is, are you not aware? Are you not aware, Corinthians, that that you are God's temple and that when you gather in particular, God is present in a significant and a real way? Have you forgotten Tonight, I just want to bring a reminder. I don't think what will be offered tonight will be profound instruction. We had that for sure last night and this morning. I just want to bring a reminder tonight, that's all. C.S. Lewis said, we have more need to be reminded than instructed. And he's smart and he said that, so I'm just going to bring a reminder. I'm just going to bring a reminder. We have more need to be reminded than instructed. And here's the reminder. When we gather... He is present. When we gather, when the church gathers, God is present. Now, He is present because we are His people. He indwells us. And as we gather specifically for our Lord's Day gatherings, He is present in an unusual way. But how is He present? Mark said this morning that last night Jeff spoke about the where of God's presence. And this morning that Mark spoke about the when of God's presence. Well, tonight I'm going to be speaking about the how of God's presence. When the church gathers as the temple of God, how is God present? How are we to perceive his presence? How are we to be aware of his presence? What would you look for? What would you listen for? How would you know if God is present? Mark taught so clearly this morning that we can be assured of his presence based on the work of Christ on our behalf. But how would we perceive his presence when we gather? Now, we can talk about God's presence in many different ways as we gather. We can talk about God's presence as we sing. Psalm 100 says, come into his presence with singing. Come before his presence with singing. We could speak of singing. We could speak of God's presence as we fellowship, as the people of God interact with one another. We could speak of God's presence in fellowship. We could speak of God's presence through spiritual gifts. When spiritual gifts are exercised in the body of Christ, we sense Or we are aware, or we encounter God's presence. But I'm going to speak about God's presence in two very specific ways. Bob has given me an assignment to speak about God's presence through the very ordinary and the very common means of grace. I want to speak about God's presence to us in the gathered assembly through his preached word, and through the Lord's Supper. For when we gather, God is present through His preached Word. So we're going to look at these two things tonight. We'll look at a number of scriptures that talk about how God is present 
in our meeting. First, I'm going to talk about preach word. Secondly, I'll talk about the Lord's Supper. You see the elements up here tonight. We're not actually going to receive the Lord's Supper tonight, but I want to speak to you about that in just a moment so that you will be uh, in faith and I trust freshly encouraged so that you, when you return to your local congregation, your local church where the sacraments are served, where you do receive communion together with those you're joined to in a local church, you will hopefully have a fresh appreciation of God's presence to you there. First of all, he is present through the preached word. If you have a Bible, turn to 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to begin to read in verse 16. But before I do, I want to give you the context of this passage briefly. These are the final words of the Apostle Paul, at least the final words we have in writing. This is uh, the last letter Paul has written. Paul is at the end of his race. He says that in this letter, I've run the race. He has completed his race, and now he is literally, as we read this, handing the baton to Timothy. Timothy is receiving the baton, and as Paul has completed his race, he is giving a final charge to Timothy, a final charge, a final reminder, Timothy, this is what I want you to do for my race is over. And this is what he writes him in part, beginning in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul gives this charge to Timothy about what he should give himself to. And he does so by first pointing to him the authority of God's word. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. Paul is communicating to Timothy this this reality which is to inform his ministry that the scripture, the word of God, the book that you hold on your lap even here tonight is not the word of man It is not a human philosophy. It is not the best ideology that we could come up with. It's not the best written book that man could produce. No, it is the very Word of God. It is the breathed out Word of God. Now, God uses human authors in the Scripture. He uses their times. He uses their personalities. He uses their gifts. But He superintends that process so that the final product that we have, the Word of God, is the very Word of God. It is the breath of God. And we must grasp that. We must be aware that when you open your Scripture to read the Bible, you are hearing the very voice of God speak to you. The very presence of God through the very voice of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, through the breathed out Word of God. And so with that in view, what Paul tells Timothy that he wants him to do, what he wants him to give himself to in the most sober manner, verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God. This drips with sobriety. 
This drips with holiness. I am charging you in the presence of God and before Christ. And if it's not enough that this charge comes in the presence of God and before Christ, there is this little reminder, who will judge the living and the dead? He sets this up. He sets this holy moment up. He sets this charge up with a degree of sobriety that's hard to fathom. And he says, given the nature of Scripture, that God speaks to His people through His Word, given the charge is coming in the presence of God and for Christ who will judge the living and the dead. Timothy, this is what you give yourself to. You preach the Word of God. You preach the Word of God. The, the word preach here is significant. It, it's the, it's the, uh, the verbal form of the noun herald. To announce. It means to proclaim publicly. What Paul says here is that Timothy, I'm, it's over for me. I've run my race. Now here's what I want you to do. You proclaim publicly as a herald. You announce the very God breathed word. You announce the scripture. That's what he wants him to do. That's what he calls him to do. To herald the word. Now we're not very familiar with heralds. We, we don't have Harold, we have guys named Harold, but we don't have H-E-R-A-L-Ds in our day. And most of us would not be familiar with a first century Harold, but we are familiar with medieval Renaissance aged Harolds. And, and the, the picture's different, but the concept's exactly the same. And you've seen this. You've seen this in a movie. You've gone to some Renaissance event and seen this sort of deal where the guy comes to the, uh, to the town square, and he calls all the people together and he's there, you know, he's got his tights, he's got his velvet outfit with the puff sleeves and it does down and does that deal right there. I don't know what that's called, but it's like a, he's got the poof skirt, he's got the tights, you've got the image. He's got the trumpet. It's got like two to three triangular pendants, uh, you know, pendants hanging off of it. And he comes in, dur, 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 and, he, and there's the blowing of the trumpet, uh, hopefully with a little bit more authority than that. And, and the people gather and what does the herald say? Hear ye, hear ye, by royal decree of the king. And then he lets go some announcement. Nobody's there to hear the velvet-clad dude in tights. No one cares about him. No one cares about his trumpet. They're there to hear what is being communicated from the king. They've come to hear what does the king have to say to his people. And that's the image that Paul is giving Timothy. The very breathed out word of God is to be heralded. It is to be announced. And in the presence of God, I'm charging you to be a faithful herald to announce the word of God. And when we hear the, the word of God heralded, it's not just the herald we, we hear. The person in the pulpit, the man in the pulpit is a herald. But it's not just the human voice of the herald. Because when he announces the scripture, he's announcing the very breathed out word of God. He's not announcing himself. He's announcing the breathed out word of God. And the Holy Spirit attends the breathed out word of God, so that what is heard is God speaking to his people. And see, that, that defines the Sunday gathering. This passage alone defines, in, in significant part, the purpose of the Sunday gathering. We're not gathered as spectators to a show. We're not gathering on Sunday even as students to hear a teacher. We are certainly not gathered as patrons who have come to, uh, to have entertainment on a Sunday. When the people of God gather, it is so that the king may announce through a herald his word to his people. So that what is heard is God speaking to his people. So that what is heard is the very breathed out word of God declared to his people. When the word of God is proclaimed aloud, it is God that we hear. Let this inform us when we gather on Sunday that preaching is not just talk about God. Biblical preaching is talk from God. 
Biblical preaching is not just talk about God. Biblical preaching is talk from God. God revealing Himself. God revealing Christ to us and His work. Speaking to us. Communicating His extraordinary presence through the ordinary means of preaching. See, when you hear God's Word preached, you are not only hearing about what God has done. You are hearing that. Faithful preaching will announce what God has done and in a primary way what Christ has done for us through the cross and resurrection. But you are not only hearing about what God has done. You are hearing what God is actually doing as He is speaking His Scripture to us and applying it to our lives. God is actually doing something when we gather. He is revealing Himself. He is speaking. He is present. Paul makes this point in an astounding way to the Thessalonians. In in 1 Thessalonians 2, listen to these words of how Paul describes the preaching ministry to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you hear what Paul is saying? That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is. Thessalonians, when we brought you the word, when we spoke to you the word, you received it for what it actually is. Do you know what it actually is? It's the word of God, is what he says. You heard the word of God. See, when we gather on the Lord's Day, we need to ask ourselves, whom am I coming to hear? Who am I coming to hear? Some of you attend a church, perhaps, or members of a church that has a teaching team. And sometimes, well, I kind of prefer when this person preaches, I prefer this man, I prefer that pastor. That that reveals perhaps a bit about who we're coming to hear. We're coming to hear God speak to us from God's Word. Because when we gather, God is present through His preached Word. As we listen, what are we expecting? Am I expecting to hear God speak? Am I listening actively? Am I listening attentively? Am I listening on the edge of my seat Hungering for God to speak to my soul from the Scripture. To have the God-breathed out Word invigorate my soul, correct my soul, strengthen my soul, feed my soul as the Gospel is proclaimed in my ears. What place does the preached Word have in our hearts? J.I. Packer wrote a book called Quest for Godliness. It's a book where he wrote about Puritan theology. It's also an historical perspective, uh, writing about the Puritans and various aspects of their faith and their community. Uh, and in that book, he wrote something that stood out to me. I, this is something that has, I've just been kicking around in my mind. He, he made the following comment about the Puritans and preaching. He said this, For congregations... Therefore, the hearing of sermons is the most momentous event of their lives. And the Puritans pleaded with worshipers to appreciate this fact and to listen to the word preached with awe, with attention, and with expectancy. That phrase, for congregations, Puritan congregations, the hearing of sermons is the most momentous event of their lives. Why is it the most momentous event of their lives? It's not because of the age they live in. It's not, well, they didn't even have television yet. What do you expect? 
It wasn't, well, the Puritans, they couldn't watch 24. What do you think is going to be momentous in their life? That's not the reason. It's not because they didn't have an opportunity to check MySpace that sermons seemed incredibly momentous because they just sort of lived a boring life with nothing but Sunday to tie them over. No, the reason that sermons were the most momentous events of their lives is because when God's word is preached, God is present. It's because they encountered the living God through the preached word. And what is more momentous in any life than to encounter the living God by his spirit? There's nothing more momentous. And thus, the receiving of the preached word was to inspire, he says, awe, attention, expectancy. See, I believe that my heart will resonate with awe, attention, and expectancy to preaching to the degree I identify who's speaking to me. It's, it's who... It's the nature of the speaker that stirs awe and attention and expectancy. And if it's just a guy that I'm hearing, well, if he's funny, that's good. If he's got compelling stories, that's good. If he can kind of stir my emotions, that's good. But if it's the breathed out word of God that's being declared, oh, those aren't the things to consider at all. It's God is speaking to me. God is addressing me. God is speaking to his people, us. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, listen, you didn't receive it as the word of men. You received it as what it really is. The word of God. See, when God's word is declared by his spirit, Christ is present to instruct us to encourage us, to convict us, to illumine us, to open our eyes, to change us. And it may appear ordinary, because it's just a guy speaking with a human voice, perhaps amplified in an auditorium. It may appear very ordinary, but God has chosen this ordinary means, this common means of heralding, announcing, publicly proclaiming the message of a king. He's chosen that means to be present, one of the means to be present with his people. How do we know God's present? Well, we know God's present when God's word is preached. Because when the heralded word of God goes forth, God is present, addressing and speaking to our souls. And there's simply nothing, nothing more momentous than gathering with the people of God and being instructed and addressed by the gracious God of the universe who has condescended to us in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and has given His life as a substitute for our sin, been raised on the third day to life, ascended to the right hand of the Father, poured out the Spirit upon His people so that now our hearts are regenerated, our ears are open. He dwells in us individually. He dwells in us as a people. And when we gather, He is present through His preached Word. Not only that, but He is also present when we gather through the Lord's Supper. When we gather, God is present through the Lord's Supper. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are other ways that God, that we can uh, discern God's presence in our midst. I'm just speaking on these two. I'm not saying these are the only way, but these are certainly primary means of grace. How is he present? How is he present when we receive the bread and the cup? Well, uh, we're not going to cover that in full detail for we have Catholics and Protestants over that very issue. I will say that what I'm going to be arguing for tonight is not the Roman Catholic view, that God is, uh, Christ is literally present, that he is literally present in the physical elements of the bread and the cup, that at the words of institution they are changed into his very flesh and blood so that we are nourished by him. Uh, we are not arguing for that point of view. We're not saying that he is physically present. Jesus is not physically 
present with us in any gathering of the local church. Uh, at this point in time, one day we will see him as the gathered church face to face and he will be with us. But having said that, it's easy to overreact to that, which I believe is a false teaching. It's easy to overreact to that and to give the impression that he's nowhere near the bread and the cup. One, one person I, I read wrote that uh, some people take it so far that the one place that Jesus will most assuredly not be found is at the Lord's table. That is the pra- that is the doctrine of the real absence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. So we are not arguing for that. We're not arguing that that he is nowhere to be found. That we want to just make that so clear that we overreact. We don't want to understand the Lord's Supper as merely a reminder. That it's nothing more than a reminder. It's nothing more than a symbol. Now clearly. It is a symbol. The bread represents his body and the cup represents his blood. Very clearly, there's a symbolic nature to the Lord's Supper. We remember what he has done. It is, it is at one level, certainly a memorial. But he is also present with his people whenever we gather and he is present with us when we receive the Lord's Supper. John Calvin said it this way. I think this is a helpful phrase to perhaps guide our understanding as we look at some scripture. He says, the godly ought by all means to keep this rule. Whenever they see symbols appointed by the Lord to think and be persuaded that the truth of the thing signified, the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. For why would the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his body except to assure you of a true participation in it? The truth of the thing signified is surely present there. What is signified by the Lord's Supper? A number of things are signified. One thing that is signified is that our our sins are forgiven. That because of the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, that we are washed clean. That we are reconciled to God. That we are reconciled to one another. There's a horizontal dimension to the Lord's table such that it emphasizes that we who were once not a people have now, because of the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of the Savior, we are a people. We who were apart have now been joined together. And that His Spirit dwells in the midst of us. So that what is symbolized remembered, memorialized in the receiving of the bread and cup is also a living reality in our midst. It is a living symbol. God is present with us in in a powerful way as we receive the bread and cup by faith, discerning His work and discerning His presence, reconciling us both individually and corporately to Himself. Now, I want to look at a few scriptures if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians because I think Paul in 1 Corinthians makes several statements that, that indicate in his description of the Lord's Supper, he makes several statements that I think indicate the nature of the Supper. And I think the nature of the Supper at one level is to communicate God's presence to us and with us. The Lord's Supper communicates something about our relationship with God, God's relationship to us, and our relationship to one another. 1 Corinthians 10, first of all, looking in verse 16. Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Is it not a participation in the bread? Is there not participation in the body? Is there not participation uh, in the blood of Christ? The word participation is a significant word. It's a word that means common. It's a word that means sharing. It's a word that is translated, you would know the word, uh, koinonia. It is a word that is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as fellowship. And Paul is telling them, Is there not a fellowship? Is there not a commonality? Is there not a sharing? I I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think the old King James translated it, communion. Is there not a communion? That's where we get the name communion. Is there not a sharing, participation, a commonality, a fellowship with Christ 
in the bread and in the cup. So that's one image translated participation or fellowship. There's a communing through the Holy Spirit with the Savior. Uh, Later in the same chapter, uh, verse 21, he is talking to the Corinthians about their participation in idol feasts and forbidding them to do so. And in doing that, he says this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's saying here that receiving the Lord's Supper, receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper is like coming to the table of the Lord. It is a a place of fellowship. It is a place of eating. Is it a place of sharing? It is a place of nourishment. Now, we do not, we do, we're not nourished by the physical person of Christ, but we do come to a table. A, A picture of a table is a meal. There is a fellowship and an interaction that takes place as we come to the table. In chapter 11, later on in uh, verse 20, he's actually correcting them here. And he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, they should be eating the Lord's Supper, but their behavior indicates that they do not understand the nature of the Lord's Supper or the nature of communing with God or the nature of relating with his people in a gospel-centered way. But in that, he describes it as a supper. And so these three images that we get, the image of fellowship, the image of table, the image of supper, communicate something to us. And there's mystery here, deep mystery here to be sure. But it communicates something to us about God's presence with us to nourish us spiritually uh, as we receive by faith. And remember what He has done for us. Someone has described the sacraments, and communion in particular, has described it as visible words. See, when we come to receive communion, are we hearing God's words to us? These are visible words. When we receive communion, God is saying to us, You're forgiven. You're forgiven. It's a reminder of his death on our behalf. His blood shed, his body broken. Listen, when you receive communion, do you hear? I don't mean literally, but do you perceive in your heart? Do you discern God's word to you? God's communication to you? God's fellowship with you? Springing from the truth of what He's done for us on the cross. Forgiven. Welcomed in my presence. Loved. Treasured possession. Covenant people. Do we hear, you're my covenant people. Do we hear, no longer enemy, but friend. Friend, meeting at the table, having supper, enjoying fellowship with the holy God of the universe because of what Christ has done for us. Reconciled to God. There's a word. Whenever you receive the bread and the cup, we should hear echoing in our soul, reconciled to God and his people. See, meals play a very important role place in scripture in biblical history biblical theology and meals play an interesting place even as we consider uh, ourselves in the presence of god before adam and eve fell they ate all their meals in the presence of god jeff talked about what it was like in the garden the place of paradise where god walked in their midst and all of their meals were eaten before god and certainly in his presence but it was a meal that shattered their relationship with God. For one day, Adam and Eve partake and eat and share a meal of the forbidden fruit, free to eat of any tree but one. And in an act of rebellion, in an act of of refusing God's authority and seeking to be their own gods and determining their own freedom to do what they will, they choose to have a meal. They eat of the tree. 
And this meal banishes them from the presence of God. Because of that meal, there is separation from man and from God, who had enjoyed all meals freely before him, free to eat from any tree of the garden. When Christ comes and shares the Last Supper with his disciples, which we remember and experience through the Lord's Supper, there is a restoration of relationship communicated to us through the truth of this meal. This is a meal of reconciliation. This is a meal that says, though we were distant and though we were separate because of our sin, there has been an intermediary intermediary who has uh, interposed himself, who has given his own body, who has given his own blood, who has stood as a substitute to endure the wrath of God that was due us from the meal at Eden. It was the meal of rebellion that, that earned the wrath of God for our sin, and yet Christ takes that takes that that wrath from God in our, from the Father in our place dies and substitutes and through a meal welcomes us reminds us declares to us as we remember his body broken and his blood shed that through this meal there is a fellowship meal where enemies who were apart are now friends in the ancient Near East, if two enemies became reconciled in some way, that was celebrated and that was commemorated, not with just a signed document, a high five, a hug, a handshake. That's not how it was commemorated. It was commemorated through a meal where the two enemies sat down at the table together and the sharing of the meal demonstrated that there was fellowship that there was a welcome at the table, that two parties that had been separate are now together, demonstrated and celebrated with the presence of both of them together through a fellowship meal. And that in part is what's happening whenever we receive communion. There's a fellowship meal that we who were the enemies of God by our defiance of His holiness, by our hatred of His law, by our rejection of His benevolent rule over us, we made ourselves His enemies, yet He, He took the price due us and He made us His friends. And the reminder of that reconciliation is when we receive the bread and the cup and He's present at the table by His Spirit. He's present by His Spirit, enabling us to enjoy sweet communion and fellowship with Him and with His people. And we proclaim that. Every time we receive the bread and the cup, we proclaim His death, the Scripture says. We proclaim His death until He comes. Because the cup and the bread point to another meal. They point us to the day when it won't be the spiritual presence, the spiritual real presence of Christ at the table. It'll be the living Christ face to face as we gather at the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. This points forward to another meal when we will be in His presence and we will be reconciled sitting physically at the table with Christ and with His people celebrating the gospel and what He has done for us. Now here's the question. Do we consider His presence in the Lord's Supper? Because He's present. He's present because of the work of Christ and because of His indwelling Spirit. Do we receive by faith? Do we receive it by faith, renewing our trust in the Gospel and hearing the Word of God forgiven, reconciled, family, Covenant people. Our sins have been atoned for. We are welcomed into His presence. When we gather, He's present. Now there are many ways we can talk about His presence, but these two images. When we gather, God is present in the pulpit as His Word is proclaimed and at the table as we receive by faith, the Lord's Supper, recognizing and discerning His presence in our midst. Here's why this is so important. 
I believe this is important because when God's people gather, we are gathering to worship a personal God who is present. When we gather on Sunday, we are not just running through a program. Listen, we are not just executing an order of service. We are not just sort of moving through the agenda of the meeting. Now we're gathering in the presence of God to encounter God personally by His Holy Spirit. We're coming to recognize His presence in the church as we gather as His people. And I believe that we simply cannot honor God appropriately if we don't recognize His presence. If we don't recognize His presence, if we don't desire His presence, if we don't thirst for His presence, if we don't celebrate His presence, if we don't enjoy His presence, knowing that He's always present when we gather because of Christ and because His Spirit dwells in us, if we do not value His presence, God will not be properly worshipped. If we're only vaguely sort of aware that sometimes I get this goosebump thing on certain songs and I know he's present there, we're not worshiping God. If it's just sort of, well, I feel him on a certain type, you know, if it's very soft, I can feel him in the room. Music very soft, I can sort of feel him in the room. When the pastor told that really sad story, I felt God right there. God is always present, as Mark said, and He is present, and we can discern His presence through His Scripture announced and heralded to us, the God-breathed Word, and through receiving the bread and the cup, the fellowship meal where He is present, and we are reconciled to Him. That's why it's important, because recognizing God's presence and responding to God's presence is what Christian worship is about because we worship a personal God who is present now, here, tonight, and every Sunday that you gather. These two things relate in this way as well, the table and the pulpit. When we think about God's presence, sometimes we just think that God is present to sort of hear our worship. And that's true. God is present that as we sing, He is receiving worship. As we pray, He is receiving worship. As someone preaches, God is receiving worship. And so there is this idea that God is present when we gather and that we are worshiping Him through these various activities and that He is the audience of one. That's true. But we must realize that God is not only gathered as a spectator, hoping that we put on a good show for Him. The audience of one is not just a spectator. He's present. He's the actor. He's the speaker in our worship as well. God is not just there to receive from us, as glorious and as privileged as that we are, to give Him worship and bring Him worship. He does. He does receive that, and He is honored by that. But God is not present merely to observe. God is present to speak. God is present to act. God is present in His Word proclaimed and in the table. And if we don't see that, we miss Him. We miss God. God's got something to say to us. God is present. God is not hiding. God loves us. God delights in revealing Himself to us. And here's just two ways that He does that. God delights to speak to us, to reveal Himself. God delights to be present with His people. We are invited to worship Him in His presence. His presence. Gordon Fee said, presence is a delicious word. The presence of God. So how do we respond to all this? Well, maybe this illustration will help. Yesterday, I marked 20 years of marriage to my wife, Ginger. Now, I think something needs to be said about that. Josh kind of sauntered in the first evening and said he skipped his date night to be here. Um, Jeff announced last night that he delayed his vacation so that he could be here and then go on vacation. Uh, I want you to know that I was with you. 
on my 20th anniversary. Now, before every lady in this room hates my guts, okay? Because I know every lady is saying, nudging, don't you dare do that on our 20th anniversary. <laughs> Everything I said has gone out the window to the ladies in the room. What do you mean you're on your anniversary at 20th at the worship conference? Well, my wife approved this because yesterday we marked 20 years, but Monday we celebrate because I go home Saturday after this conference. I gather with God's people to encounter his presence in many ways, not least of which will be pulpit and table as well this Sunday uh, to encounter God. And then Monday we get on a plane and we go to Hawaii for eight days to be together to celebrate our anniversary because of that. Yeah, I'm applauding too. Because of a wonderful provision that was made that we could be there. So I've never been to Hawaii. And so as we consider going to Hawaii, we have, uh, we have scoured tour books. We have talked to people who've been to the area we're going in Maui. Uh, we have been on the internet. We have taken time to plan. We have spent money to, uh, m- to get over there. Uh, and we have given it a lot of thought. And we are looking forward to the time. I'm looking forward to rest. I'm looking forward to relaxation. I'm looking forward to no cell phones. I'm looking forward to no calendar. I'm looking forward to no alarm clock. I'm looking forward to enjoying the environment. We're looking forward to beaches. We're looking forward to sites. We're looking forward to restaurants. But listen, what I'm most anticipating about the trip is not a beach and not a sunset. It's being present with my wife. Because if she wasn't there, it wouldn't be a second honeymoon. What's, I'm smart. I'll tell you, I got this figured out. I was here and not there on my anniversary, but I'm, I'm, I'm figuring it out. No, we, we talked this through. She's, if she was here, she would tell you, I'm very happy to go next week. This is great. She's not offended. She's loving it. But what is making the trip, the highlight of the trip, the purpose of the trip is presence. It's to be together. I'm not going to see sights. I'm going to celebrate 20 years of marriage and our love for one another and the grace of God that sustained us. We're going to make a memory together. That's the point. The point of our gathering, the point of our going rather, is to be together. It's a trip that has to do with celebrating presence. Just being together. And I think when we plan our worship services, the point of the illustration is in no way to compare romance to worship services because I think they're two different things and sadly they are compared many times. They're two different things. The point of the illustration, the connection is personal presence. And when we gather to worship God, when we plan for the Sunday meeting, when we administrate, and spend, and look ahead, and think, and organize, and practice, and pray, and cry out to God, and evaluate, and and creatively brainstorm, and scour the scripture. When we do all of these things to prepare for the Sunday gathering, what is it that we're focusing on? It's not just running a meeting. It's not getting together and putting on a show. We're not just doing a program. We're coming to encounter God personally. It's His presence. It's Him. It's the Savior. It's His truth. It's His message that we celebrate. It's His voice that we come to hear through the Scripture preached to us. It's His truth that we desire. We come for Him Not for an idea, not for a philosophy, for the person of God who is with us by His Holy Spirit. And as we look forward to our Sunday gatherings, if you are a pastor, if you are a worship leader, a member of a worship team, a sound crew, whatever it is, I encourage you to think and plan and pray and expect and anticipate 
God's presence. He is there. And he calls us to discern where he is there and to respond to him as he is with us, for he makes himself known. When we gather, God is present through the preaching of the word and through the Lord's Supper. One point, one point, one application. The application of this, anticipate his presence. Look forward to his presence. Anticipate his presence. I'm given a point of application tonight. It's homework. Most of you, I'm not going to see, can't follow up. Please don't mail in your, your assignment or anything of the sort. But here's the assignment. For the next four Sundays, it's a month. It's not a lifetime. Not giving you an assignment. Go out of here and forevermore. I hope that's the case. But for four Sundays, for four Sundays, anticipate God's presence and discern God's presence in your midst. For the next four weeks, as you are thinking through the Sunday meeting, pray a prayer something like this. Uh, There's nothing magic about this prayer, but this is the heart. Pray something like this. Lord, as we gather Sunday, make me aware of your presence and help me to respond to your presence. Make me aware through the word preached. Make me aware that it is the voice of God that addresses me. When I receive communion, make me aware of what you've done for me. And may there be fellowship and communion and participation and sharing and worship of you. Make me aware of your presence and help me to respond to your presence. I was just thinking, what would it be like if every Sunday I gathered? Oh, not every Sunday, just the next four. Okay, the next four. What would it be like if we gathered anticipating the presence of God, discerning the presence of God, aware of the presence of God, and then seeking to humbly respond to the presence of God. What would it be like if everyone on our worship team throughout the week was anticipating the presence of God, was praying for the leaders, was asking God to soften our heart, was asking God to help us be aware of his presence and help us to respond to his presence? What if everyone who gathered Sunday in our local church, came anticipating the presence of God through the preached word and was praying and was listening and was aware and was saying, Lord, make me aware of your presence. Speak to me. You're present to speak. Open my ears that I may hear and help me to respond to your presence. What if the entire church gathered And when communion was served, every individual there was anticipating and desiring the presence of God, aware of his presence already in the meeting, discerning his presence, and the truths communicated through communion uh, of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of union with Christ and union with his people were echoing in our souls, were, were, were shout, those truths were being shouted in our ears by the Spirit that we were saying, God is here, God is real, God's presence is here. God, I discern you and I respond with worship or respond with gratitude or respond with repentance or respond with whatever the appropriate response would be. What if we all gathered anticipating, discerning, asking, Lord, make me aware of your presence. Lord, help me to respond to your presence. What would the meeting be like if all of us came aware that God is present, God is speaking in many ways, but through pulpit and through table, through the common means of a human voice heralding the word of God, and through the common, the very common elements elements of juice and bread that God is communicating his spiritual presence to us, taking ordinary means of voice and food. And God is present to declare the gospel by his spirit to us and to meet his people. What would that be like? What if? What if? Well, let's pray the next four Sundays and let's ask God to open our eyes. He's been present all along and he'll continue to be present. But may we not be those who are vaguely aware or worse, unaware of his presence. What if? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are present. And as we have heard your word tonight, we thank you that you speak to us, that your word is living and that your word is active. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us, that you're a God who reveals yourself, 
God, you reveal yourself to us through the Scripture. Lord, we would be completely ignorant of you were it not for your self-revelation and for your kind and gracious nature to reveal yourself. You reveal to us yourself to us in the person of Christ. Lord, the, the living word, we see you as we see Christ and as we understand him, the God-man. God, you reveal yourself to us through very ordinary means. The God-breathed word heralded by an imperfect individual. And Lord, the very common means of bread and wine. God, through those you communicate, you speak to us. And we thank you for that. And we pray that we would be those who are not vaguely aware, but those who are distinctly discerning, those who are alert, those who hear, those who see, those whose ears are opened and whose eyes are illumined to perceive your presence. And, oh God, help us to respond to you in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Craig Cabanis, which was given at our Worship God 2006 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.SovereignGraceMinistries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.